Hello, I'm Colin Green, and you are listening to Spike Grounds. Yes, folks, it's another crossover episode in the OSR Anchorite style. This time it is my good self chatting with my man Ray Otis from Plundergrounds. Hope you enjoy the episode. It's going to be a two-parter. First part will air on my show, and the second part will air on Ray's. Ray's Plunderground for part two. Good afternoon, Spike Pit. Good morning, Ray. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm good. So it's pretty early for you there. I feel like I've already spoken to you in a strange way. But I haven't, have I? No, that's right, isn't it? We've just been calling to each other asynchronously through the podcast. Yeah, I know. It's it's quite surreal, really, I think. <laughs> it is. You're right. <laughs> well, especially for me, like you said, it's 6.30 here. So in the morning, and it's what, like 3.30 there? Uh, 2.30. 2.30 yeah. in the afternoon. Okay. Yeah, we change our clocks around. It gets pretty confusing. We do, too. I, I don't understand it myself. I, I don't think there's any evidence empirical evidence that daylight savings time actually does anything um, energy savings wise or whatever i know it messes with people's biological clocks and my dog certainly doesn't know that it's an hour different than it was a week no ago. definitely definitely and of course it's all smoke and mirrors nothing's changed does it right so. well i think it's been said a lot but there's a great first nations uh, proverb White people think that uh, tearing a strip off the bottom of a blanket and sewing it onto the top gives you more blanket. <laughs> yes, I think, I think there's plenty of people that actually think that that would work, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today? Well, we've um, we've looked at a couple of subjects, and, and I think what you say, you know, we've got this common background. Yeah, we do, don't we? How long ago was art school for you? Should I even ask? Well, I, I graduated when I was 20 and I'm now 44. So it's going to be coming up for 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably more like 30 for me. Okay. But it's still does pretty it se- fresh in my memory. Oh, you've answered the question. Yeah. I was just going to say, does it seem like 30 years? No, not at all. Yeah. Quite, quite scary. They were kind of magical days for me. Did you, did you have a similar experience? Um, magical for me, that would be a bit of an, uh, an overstatement, Okay, <laughs> but, um, they, they were good. I, it was tricky for me because I went into college and I, I had a pretty steady relationship okay, um, uh, yeah. with, the, with the girl who turns out to now be my wife. There you go. Um, so it was a bit of a wrench to go away to college, but that would be very hard because one of the things that people don't necessarily understand about art majors is how much time that your classes take. Not only do the classes themselves, the studio classes often take longer. Well, I don't know how the UK system is entirely different, I realize. But it, when you get a project, I, I don't know. By the time I was a junior, I was probably doing at least two all-nighters a week just to keep up. Mm-hmm. So might be a, a good thing to contrast how our days went. Um, what was the standard day for you as a, an art major? So, you know, we have seat time in American universities. I assume there it's more of that kind of tutor system. But so I'd have, you know, roughly 15 to 18 credit hours of classes, which would normally mean 15 to 18 hours a week in the classroom. But since you're an art major, 
every class was doubled up in terms of the time you spent in the class. And so I would spend, uh, you know, maybe 30 hours a week in class um, and mm-hmm. they'd be kind of spread out. I was often an early guy. So I would get up and, you know, get going and hit the classroom at eight or so. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would basically roam. We had this beautiful old art building that was kind of really only the art majors in there. Uh, so we were mm-hmm. all, it was this little community of people inside the college, you know, and we were yeah. all friends because we would pass each other at 2 a.m. in the hallways, 3 a.m. I had a little studio in there after my second year. So I just pretty much lived in there. I would go home to shower and eat and sleep a couple hours. Yeah, it was just, I just kind of floated around that building at all hours. Maybe that's why it's a little dreamy to me and magical because it was just, it was this kind of time in my life where <laughs> I was just like disappear into creativity. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds different yet the same over here. I would, I shared a house with a couple of guys who were on my course and we would regularly be the first people into the building of a morning. It was a sort of a a sixties fairly monstrous building, Mm -hmm. but um, we were more workshop based by the time I was doing my degree, I was designing and, and predominantly making furniture. Mm-hmm. So we would we would get into the workshop as soon as it was open. We'd have our own bench and our little area, much like you, you you had your studio space. We would have a workshop space, and I would be there all day until the caretakers, which would be a, a janitor over there, would more or less be tapping their foot, waiting for us to go. You know, or they'd sort of mm-hmm. start switching lights off in the building and stuff. So we couldn't, we couldn't stay there beyond probably, I think it was about 10 o'clock because there'd be night classes would come in um, after sort of seven and then at 10 o'clock we'd get thrown out, but I'd go home uh, back to the digs where we were, where we were living, cook up a quick bit of pasta or something. And then I'd stick on like blur park life on a little tape recorder and then just sit there with my sketchbook working out what I needed to do for the next day and mm-hmm. brainstorming solutions to whatever the current design problem was. Do you still keep a sketchbook? Yeah. I've funnily enough, um, there's been quite a lot of chat amongst the anchorites about game prep and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I've more or less just I went away from it a little bit, but I've always kept notes and things. But I've gone back to uh, having a GM book that is pretty much, because I do so much RPG stuff now, I've got this GM book, which is very much influenced by my sketchbook keeping habit, you know. The keeping of the sketchbook has informed my RPG design philosophy, really. Yeah, that's an interesting thought because in college or in in, uh, university, I mean, we lived and died by our sketchbooks, right? I don't know how many hours I spent on each sketchbook. (laughs) I still have them around somewhere. And then you're right. I kind of went into note-taking mode where it was kind of all over the place. But lately, yeah, I I agree. The last couple of years, I've kept more of a physical gaming journal Uh slash idea book. For me, it's a little bit of, I use the phrase screen toxicity. I look at a computer all day. Mm-hmm. And you just get tired of it. I run a software company and I work with creatives, programmers. I think of them as creatives. And it's one of the things I carried away with me from art schools, how to deal with people who are creative. And yep. 
they use a lot of physical, they use a lot of paper too. I was always surprised, but when they get away from their computers, I see them, they ha- often will keep a book. And I think that's become almost, you know, modern backlash to all the screen time is all the people that like their moleskins or their yeah. you know, Oxford, Oxford red and blacks or whatever. Yeah, I think it's a, it does seem to be a reaction, especially the, uh, what do you call it? The, the what is it? The uh, dot. What's that dot journaling thing? Something dot. Oh, bullet bullet journals. Bullet. That's it. Bullet. Yeah. yeah. Bullet journals. That seems to be a bit of a reactionary movement, almost. Yeah, it's a style, right? I think it just boils down to keeping lists with some different forms of bullets, and I've done it before. It's it's actually quite good. You know, you make it your own. As with anything, it's not. Sometimes people make it sound like a cult, like you got to learn all the ins and outs. And <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a, some sort of left brain, right brain thing going on there. There's a there's a type of person that needs that structure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is another thing I think that we learned from art school, which is um, there was always people that wanted to break the rules. But one of the disciplines you learn in art is you kind of have to follow the rules first before you could intelligently break the rules. Like you have to learn how to draw accurately. You draw from life, you draw from nature and you have to learn how to draw things as they appear. And then you can personalize them. Then you can bring in your own style. And I think that's, you know, that's a learning curve that people don't often respect. So in bullet journaling, learning the system first can be very helpful in getting you engaged with it and then teaching you where it works and where it doesn't work. And then you move away and I'll take it one step further and say game rules are a bit like that. You know, people often don't play a game as is first. They start modifying it before they ever even try it. Funnily enough, I've not considered that. And I think you might have uh, hit onto something there because it irks me when people don't play the game. Exactly what you say. They don't play the game and they're changing it already. And perhaps some of that does go back to my formal training whether it's art or something else i am a believer in exactly what you're saying that you've got to get the rudiments down before you you push it to another place you look at all the people who really achieve greatness in something and very few of them just come at it out of you know just invent their own system right away i mean bruce lee was a guy that you think of as being very inventive with the martial arts, but he learned the martial arts first. Mm. Uh, Bobby Fischer on chess is a guy you think of as being very unconventional in his chess style, but I believe he started out by learning chess. <laughs> the, yeah. the sort of, I don't want to say the right way, but the conventional way. Uh, it's probably, well, it's not probably. I mean, musicians and learning a musical instrument, that, that's the same idea, isn't it? Absolutely. Before you get off uh, improvising and stuff. Yeah, if you're going to be a jazz musician, you got to know all the scales and keys and everything before you, before you start taking off and inventing. Yeah, because you've got to be totally comfortable with it, haven't you? It's got to be. It's like withdrawing. Withdrawing. I think the common misconception is that you're learning to draw, where in actual fact you're learning to look. Yes. And and observe. Because yeah, it's a. kind of thinking isn't it it's just a certain way of thinking that you're learning yeah and when you've done it for a long time i think you you may be it's like anything else you've done something and you and you forget what it was like at the outset but as soon as as soon as i i see my children or maybe my wife they sit and they they'll um they'll make a drawing 
but they always draw what they think something should look like instead right. of actually instead of looking at it. They come to it with a preconceived notion. And I think one of the first things you learn in art school, they really, I mean, for me, it was emphasizing you've got to really look. Look at that glass. You know, look at that glass. Don't draw that glass. Look, there's, that's full of reflections. Right. You can see yourself in that glass. If When you really look and you get closer and closer, you're looking. And, yeah, how about you? Do, is it, do oh, you yeah, think? absolutely. I, I, funny, I said uh, it's a certain way of thinking, but actually in some ways it's a certain way of not thinking. <laughs> you know, they kind yeah. of d- d- drill it out of you. You have to stop drawing yeah. lollipop trees, you know, the yeah. trees that look like a stick with a ball or a triangle on top. And, and yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember doing things like, you know, we'd set up a still life and then the professor would say, okay, draw everything but the still life. Draw yep. everything around it. You know, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you, you have to sort of define that thing in the middle by drawing everything that it isn't. And it, that kind of stuff really opens your brain in a neat way. Yeah. Cause you actually, when you're drawing for me, I, I, I don't really see the objects. I'm just seeing the t- a tone or a shape or looking right. at a line and you're so zoomed into it at each, each stroke you're making it, it doesn't come together as a whole until you take a step away mm-hmm. when, you know, when you're right making those marks, you, you're almost, yeah, you're in this sort of strange place. Well, when you try to force it too, it doesn't work. Right. So you, the more you try to pin it down and think about it too hard, the less true to your subject you are. I can remember doing weird things like trying to draw with my left hand and drawing with a. We, at one time, he made us bring in uh, one of those shoe polish bottles with the foam applicator on the end, and we yep. had to draw with that because it was like wow. um, jumping into a Corvette and starting out at 90 mile an hour. You don't have any. You can't slow down. You gotta. I mean, there's no subtle marks with something like that. Uh, so you learn to be bold and to just draw what you see and stop thinking about what yep. it is. And, yeah. And, and it's like the uh, the big sheet of paper and they're trying to get you to loosen up and you, you get five minutes or a two minute pose in life mm-hmm. drawing and you've got to get it done in two minutes. So you're loose and not too precious about it. And oh, yeah, yeah, really good. I, I, <laughs> I love the life drawing. That was my that was my thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, so we're probably getting a little away from gaming. Is there anything other than about our experiences in art school that you think relates to how you game today? Um, I don't know. Have you got anything in, in mind? Well, I, I know there's a lot of life skills in general. So yeah, um, solving solving creative problems with a specified tool set or a group of creative constraints. And, yeah. and actually, one thing I've learned is how hard it is to create with no constraints at all. Uh, if somebody just says, draw me something, uh, you know, it's a nightmare. <laughs> that is a, total it's a nightmare. nightmare. Right. Which is why I think uh, for me, like, so let's carry that over. I think my favorite settings are ones that are kind of like bullet lists or tables. Yeah. Um, I don't want something that's so defined that I have to internalize 80 pages of history. Uh-huh. And I don't want nothing because that could be anything. Yeah. I want, you know, I want a framework to create within. Yeah. And, do you think that that's just you or do you think that that's something that's come about because because of our, our, the, the creative background, you know, of, of learning to work to a brief? Both. Both. <laughs> I mean, I think there are some people who, who really do like internalizing all the history. So that's a little different. Yeah, see, that's, a, that's difficult because we haven't got someone 
uh, in that category represented in this conversation, have we? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I totally, I like to see that the one page dungeon or, or, you know, the stuff you're putting in plunder grounds, that's, that's perfect for me. I, I don't I don't want more than that. I want aspects of the different things. So, you know, a setting for me, that's um, maybe a drawing or some sort mm-hmm. of map, just just to give um, a context. Then maybe a, a little few points about some factions or what's going on, but that could be a couple of paragraphs. Um, mm-hmm. Then an idea of a, f- a sprinkling of a few NPCs, perhaps some um, magic items or, or or just artifacts or even mundane stuff, just to give you a. Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer too that things aren't real until you see them in play. And so for me, all that setting is I have to kind of keep it floating around in my head a little bit, but it's all unreal and loose until it comes up in the fiction at the table. You mm. know, it's all, it's all malleable until that point, right? Until you say it, it isn't fixed in people's minds. And so I like to have it I wanted to embrace that loose looseness, right? So lists yeah. and tables do that. Yeah. Um, whereas paragraphs of text do not. And I can't, if I know there's an idea there that I want to get at, I can't find it quickly in a big block of text, No. but I can find it in a table or a list. Yeah. Because you've said the magic word for me, really. I think tables, tables have really come to the fore in RPGs for me now more so than ever i'm not really sure quite how that happened but it's a trend that's happening in rpg design or whether it's just something that i'm noticing more now do you think there's a resurgence in random tables and that? i i think it's more than a resurgence i think it's innovation um okay if you look at older tables, if you look at tables from the the Dungeon Master's Guide, the '70s version, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, they're good, but they are. I don't think they compare to modern tables. I mean, there's so many different ways to do a table now. There's die drop tables. There's mm-hmm. D66 tables. There's you know curve tables and flat tables and like just um, rich rolling where you roll several different kinds of dice at once and you get multiple results and you kind of glue them together. People have just gotten very creative about how they build tables now. And so that makes them more useful in more situations, right? They're more applicable. Yeah. I've just, whilst you were saying that, I think I've just realized what sparked it off again in my mind. When you said D66, um, I think it was maze rats that led me back into tables. Oh yeah. Because they're just single words for some reason really fired up my imagination just that you get one word another word and then the combination of the two just got my brain trying to do that pattern recognition thing yeah his tables are so cool i've never seen anybody do that um so just to be clear he has you roll two two d6 and the and and the words are arranged into three columns two rows with six words in each you think of them like a table that's three wide by uh by two tall with six words in each but there's no table lines and there's no numbers it's just those words and so you it it looks very clean on the page and it's very kind of almost gestalt you know you you just it communicates itself with almost no structure at all and so yeah those are very magnetic and 
and creative and just really fascinating tables. Also, they're really good. I mean, he has just good words and yeah. good evocative thoughts in there. I was just amazed by them. I know people quite like them and speak of them pretty high. I just, I just think they're brilliant. And, and in contrast to those 1E tables uh, from the DMG back in the day, I haven't got the same nostalgia for AD&D 1E because it wasn't back in 80, 81, I was playing BX. So I can, I can look back at the DMG and say, yeah, yeah I get it. But I do find the tables a bit dry. I wouldn't really go back and use them. But I know a lot of people do. But just for me personally, I think the, the innovation that you're talking about in the, the newer stuff it is evident in comparison with some of the older stuff that may be looking a bit tired. Mm. Yeah. And nostalgia is a big word, right? It's a complicated word. And the, nostalgia for me is more visual than um, textual. So when I look at uh, an OSR retro clone, for instance, like Osric, I can open it up and it's super interesting because it makes the rules uh, more plain and apparent than they were before by streamlining them, you know, and putting them in a good order and putting better, uh, maybe more helpful tone around them. Mm -hmm. But I don't get any nostalgia feeling from that. Uh, the play feels a little nostalgic, but man, if I crack open one of those AD&D books or like the Holmes Blue Book, which is what I actually started with. And, yeah. you know, I see those crazy harpies, you know, the mm -hmm. to topless harpies that I yeah. used to have to hide from my mother. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, so she wouldn't tear up my book. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's nostalgia for me, buddy. I, I get I mean, I it's an emotion and partially maybe because uh, I'm a visual person, you know. Yeah. All that really resonates. And I mean, you don't forget any images, do you? The minute you see Never. them again, you know, and can, if I shut my eyes, I could almost, especially like Beck Me Basic and Expert mm -hmm. Monsters, all the illustrations for them. And I can see them in my, I can, see, I can just see them. Let's take it back to art for a minute because. Yeah those images get encoded in your DNA in a way. And I don't mean that literally, but mm. somehow they form a part of your memory structure. So like I have a friend, Paul, who's way into Dragonlance because he basically came to D and D by uh, Elmore's drawings mm -hmm. for me, you know, it's Dave Trampier and Errol Otis and, uh, <laughs> and just all those guys, man. And they just, yeah, they fire up my imagination for other people. It's Dieter Lisi or Brahm or, you know, it just depends on where you started, I think, um, which images first structured your the way you think about D&D. Oh, exactly. I've just picked up the um, the Art and Arcana book that Wizards have put out that uh, goes for the imagery. And um, I haven't got too far into it yet because it's like a massive book and I try, I'm just trying to, savor it a little bit if you know what i mean like, yeah. yeah yeah i'm afraid yeah. of it I, I like i love i mean i, I want to love it so much i'm almost afraid to get it out and have a look i need i sort of want my house to be empty and i want a kitchen table with a lot of light and like <laughs> yeah. I, it's, exactly it's a reverential that's yeah. it I, I feel like that like it's almost because i know those images are in there uh, it is yeah. it's, it's like uh sacred yeah and um Wow, that's weird that you say that. I mean, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah, clear the table, get the lights right, get myself, 
you know, make sure I'm comfortable and I'm not going to be distracted. And wow, a ritual. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That concludes part one of this two-part extravaganza. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. My thanks go out to Ray for generously giving his time. He did all the editing and got up especially early so that we could record our conversation. Before I go, I have an announcement. Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome is looking for playtesters for the advanced classes rules that form his next book in the BX Essentials line. If you're interested in getting involved, you can get a message to him via the Necrotic Gnome group on MeWe. All that remains for me to do now is to thank you listeners for taking the time out of your day and I hope you enjoyed it. As ever, I'd encourage you to call in with any questions or suggestions, feedback or just to say hello. And don't forget to listen to part two on Plundergrounds. Take care. Catch you later.